May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. The short but powerful verses in the first chapter of Mark's Gospel, the ones from today fall right before the ones I preached on last time I was up here, when Jesus actively begins his preaching ministry. Today's words speak of his baptism and temptation. The baptism itself is barely mentioned. But the experience of what Jesus saw and heard immediately thereafter is given more description. The true identity of Jesus as the Son of God is authenticated by the voice of God the Father, confirming what Mark has said about him from the very beginning. The only other passage in Mark that gives such a bold confirmation of Christ's status is the Transfiguration, which we just read and considered last week. On that occasion, the voice of God is heard speaking pretty much exactly the same words as here. But then the voice is heard by his closest disciples, whereas here at his baptism, Jesus alone hears his Father speaking of him as the beloved Son, in whom God is well pleased. Despite the spare terms, Mark is telling us that there is a cosmic reality lying right behind what gets described here. Once Jesus is baptized, and right before he hears the voice of his heavenly Father, the heavens are, Mark says, torn open with force, Our translation says they were merely opened, but the Greek actually has the sense of being not just opened, but torn open. And we know this because the only other time this word gets used by Mark is when, at the crucifixion of Christ, the temple curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple complex, that curtain gets torn from top to bottom. And so here, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and again at the end, that barrier between heaven and earth is not merely gently opened, but is torn asunder. A similarly dramatic note is struck by Mark's two uses of the word immediately in just five compressed verses. No sooner is Jesus baptized than he immediately sees the heavens torn open and hears the voice of his Father, and no sooner does that happen than again he immediately is driven into the desert by the Holy Spirit. Things are happening very fast indeed. The heavens have been torn open, and now all the ranks of heaven and earth are mixing and coming into conflict. 
driving Jesus out into the wilderness is the Holy Spirit. Opposing Jesus in the wilderness is Satan. With Jesus in the wilderness are the wild animals. And ministering to Jesus in the wilderness are the angels. It's as if we're seeing a kind of cosmic snapshot of all the orders of creation. And Jesus has been led into this cosmic cataclysm by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the other synoptic gospel writers say that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. But again, Mark says something different. Mark says the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. His word choice is surely deliberate. It underscores the stark power of Mark's account. Something cataclysmic is happening here. Something that would be lost on observers who are watching just another man be baptized by John, just another man weathering exposure to the elements in the wilderness, just another man condemned as a criminal and executed by Rome. The austerity and economy of Mark's account is undercut by his vocabulary, which suggests that these are not ordinary events at all. But they are rather happenings in a truly cosmic drama. The number of days Jesus spends in the wilderness, 40, is of course deeply resonant with Hebrew scripture. Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai. Elijah spent 40 days in the wilderness on the run from his enemies. The people of Israel wandered 40 years in the wilderness before entering the promised land. The pairing of this gospel passage, though, with the passage from 1 Peter raises the creative prospect of yet another parallel. This one to Noah. Peter points out that Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. That Christ died for the unrighteous is a crucially important point of atonement theology. Even the most righteous acts of self-sacrifice are normally undertaken for the sake of one's friends. But Christ alone is perfectly righteous. And the perfectly righteous one dies not for his friends, but for his enemies. And Peter argues that he did so not only for the unrighteous alive in his time, or for the unrighteous 
alive in our time. But even for the unrighteous who are long deceased. Peter here is talking about the doctrine of the harrowing of hell. That interval in the tomb after his crucifixion when Christ preached to the spirits among the dead. When the grace of salvation was extended even to those long deceased. Peter refers to that time when Noah was building the ark. And that's a time, according to the Bible, when there was no one who was righteous. No one save Noah himself and his family, eight persons among the whole world. And of course, when the ark was built, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. There's that number again. But through those floodwaters, God saved a righteous remnant. And so, too, God saves us through the waters of baptism. Now, Jesus, of course, has just been baptized and has thus instituted the sacrament of baptism that saves us thanks to his death and resurrection. And not only that, Peter reminds us, too, of the ascension that followed his resurrection. In fact, it did so after 40 days yet again, at which point Christ goes back to where he came from, the right hand of the Father in heaven, where, Peter says, angels, authorities, and powers are now subject to him. So maybe here, maybe here we get a glimpse of this ultimate reality, the subjection of the angels and heavenly powers to Christ, enthroned in heaven. Maybe we get a glimpse of that right here at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Already in the wilderness, once Christ has endured temptation by Satan, he is ministered to by the angels that Christ will ultimately ascend in triumph over the grave itself and have the angels subject to him is already being prefigured here when Christ triumphs over Satan and begins casting out the forces of evil from the world as he will go on to do right away in Mark's account. The significance of the other group of created beings referred to the wild beasts, what is going on with that? That's a little harder to figure out. Why the wild beasts? Well, some commentators read this as a restoration of something like the peace that reigned in the Garden of Eden. Like Jesus, alone with the wild beasts, Adam was originally alone with the animals in the garden before the creation of Eve. So maybe we are seeing here Jesus 
as the new Adam. Adam also was tempted by Satan, but he failed. As a result, human beings were alienated. Alienated from God, from each other, and even from nature itself, including the wild beasts. Jesus, by contrast, has defeated the temptation of Satan. And now he too is alone with the animals, symbolically restoring the peace of Eden after his endurance of temptation. There's another creative suggestion to understand this, offered by the lectionary, which pairs Genesis 9 with these passages from 1 Peter and Mark. Genesis 9 is also about Noah, and it tells of how after Noah and his family are delivered in the ark, through the waters that Peter likens to the saving waters of baptism, after all that, God establishes a covenant with Noah and his sons. He says this, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. In the Hebrew Scriptures, a living creature is either a human being or an animal. Modern biology has accustomed us to think of plants as living creatures as well, but the Bible never refers to plants as living creatures. I don't think that's intended as an insult to our friends, the plants. It's just an indication of how ancient peoples thought about nature, how they thought about what kinds of creature count as being alive. In Genesis 9, God repeatedly affirms that the covenant he is making is between himself and not just human beings, but all living things, that is, all animals. And the covenant is this. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God gives the rainbow as a sign of this covenant. A visual symbol of God setting down his bow like a warrior who is retiring his weapon never to be picked up again. When the bow is in the clouds, God tells Noah, I will look upon it and remember.
the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. So, perhaps here too, we get a glimpse, a glimpse of something to come, a glimpse of the ultimate peace that will be restored between us and even between us and the animals. Whatever we might say about the wild beasts in the wilderness with Jesus, I think we are safe in saying this much. The events of Mark chapter 1 are of cosmic importance. The baptism of Jesus tears open the heavens and sanctifies the waters of the earth. It makes of the waters a means of salvation. God had already promised Noah that water will never again be the means of destruction. But now Jesus goes further and makes of the waters a force for salvation. The temptation of Jesus defeats Satan and brings Jesus into contact with the wild animals and with the angels. And in the picture of the cosmos that's given to us in the Bible, human beings are right there in the center. We're a little higher than the animals, but we're a little lower than the angels. Right in the center. But in the center of that, in the center of all things, in the center of reality itself, stands Jesus the perfect human, and the Son of God.